full of instruction and it has certain premises, certain things that are assumed or understood and often they are explicitly spoken or referred to so that when the smoke clears and you have been a student of the Psalms, you realize that you have been introduced to a certain mindset, a perception of reality. A, what's the German word for that? A Welt Weltanschauung. A world view. And leave it to the Germans to invent the word. But because they have the mentality. It would never have come up in our English or American speech because we don't think in terms of a world view. We don't have an overarching uh, perspective that is all inclusive and has a certain logic a divine logic but they do the psalmist has it and in fact as you scrutinize the psalms and see your present situation it throws you into a, an inevitable conflict as to what in fact is reality is the psalmist all wet is he uh, simplistic does he reduce everything to the wicked and to the righteous and good and evil curse and blessing is that life I mean life is much more complex than that that it could be reduced to such simple categories, and they are always in opposition. The psalmist has a view of reality that is dualistic, D-U-A-L. It always reduces itself in the last analysis to two things, the righteous and the wicked. Blessing or curse, God or the enemy, light or darkness. And that's not a mentality that is... Um, appropriate in our generation. We are relativistic. We see many paths to truth. There are always nuances and shades of meaning and shades of gray. But the, the, the psalmist has a clear and simple view. The question is this. Is it because he's a simpleton? Or is it because his view is God's view? That's the critical question. If the view of the psalmist is God's view, we're in trouble. <laughs> we, we're the ones who need profoundly to be corrected and adjusted so and I, that's my position I see the psalmist's view as being God's foundational and we need to be brought back to it and you'll see that there's a disjuncture a tension of conflict between modern views modern seeing modern mentalities and that of the psalmist and of course this psalm is particularly David's. This is a psalm of David, mm. God's <laughs> beloved. <laughs> so that gives it a certain ring, aura, authority that uh, we shouldn't miss. Maybe he's beloved because he sees like this. And we will, and are also, as we come into this view and into this perspective. <clears throat> so, I'm reading from my uh, study Bible. New Revised uh, Standard Version. Um, pipe in where your version is a little different and perhaps even keener. I love the King James. But uh, let me read from mine. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Shall we just comment as we go rather than, you know? Why, why does the psalmist begin with an injunction like this? Do not fret. Fretfulness is a state of unbelief. To fret, to be anxious, to form at the mouth, to be irritated, to be resentful, is an indication of an absence of faith. 
It's uh, being chafed because you don't see God in that situation. And uh, there's something that strikes your heart in impatience or as something being foundationally unjust. Because we will learn from this psalm, and it's repeated many times over through the psalms, that the unrighteous seem to prosper. In this life, they're having a blast. They're not occupied with the things that weigh upon us. They're sailing through life uh, glibly, blithely. Everything goes their way. They seem to have it all together. And uh, so there's every reason to fret. Not only because here we are thinking to be serious about God and his purposes, and we're catching it. And we will catch it all the more as we come more deeply into the last days while they seem to be prospering all the more. So what we're fretting about is not only the inequity of that. We should be the ones prospering and being blessed. And they, they who are indifferent to God and are hostile to God and are even a threat to God's people are having a blast. So the question is, where is God? We're really vexed. Not just because of the painful contradiction, but because it raises a painful question. Where is the God who is just, who is righteous, who honors the righteous and gives to the righteous blessing and censures and rebukes the unrighteous? Where is, this is what really disturbs us, and God allows us to be disturbed. He allows us to, to choose to be whether we will be vexed or we will have such an understanding of God's mm. ultimate righteousness mm. that doesn't have to come forth right now. He could delay it for purposes of, of his own, that we can be at peace even in the contradiction of things that offend our sense of God. Mm-hmm. And that is faith. Because we have to reckon in that there's an eternity to come. It's not all going to take place in our lifetime. And if we have not sufficiently considered eternity, we will be vexed. So... David begins with, don't be vexed. (laughs) It's not a suggestion, it's almost a command. Because of the wicked, do not be envious of wrongdoers who seem to be prospering in the midst of their wrongdoing, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We're going to see in this psalm, words like soon, or um, in Psalm 102, or other places, uh, or in the scriptures, what does it say? For a moment I turn my face from you. Mm-hmm. A moment? 2,000 years is a moment? <laughs> yeah, in God's sight. <laughs> but in our sight it seems grievously long how long we have to wait. The problem is not God's but ours, which is to say our human impatience is predicated on the fact that we reflect a now generation that has to have it now. The mark of the true Davidic saint is the ability to postpone gratification. The mark of the carnal believer is the one who needs to be immediately gratified now. And one of the great questions through the faith is waiting upon the Lord. They that wait upon the Lord. Waiting is the priestly disposition and demeanor. It does not mean twiddling your thumbs. It means a patient trust that though God's answer seems long in coming, yet will you wait for it. Yeah. Which is to say, you'll not succumb to an itch yourself to provide your answer. Your trust is complete. You've thrown yourself upon God. And in fact, if he doesn't come through, you'd rather die waiting than to succeed by doing it. Mm. Not a victim of circumstance. And circumstances don't call the shots. God does. 
and your trust and your faith in Him. They that wait upon the Lord is a mouthful, and we're not finished talking about it. This is more than passive resignation. It's an active engagement and absolute trust. God will come through, however long it takes, and if there's reasons for the delay, we don't have to be instructed. He's not under obligation to explain to us why he's late or why he's slow or why the answer has not yet come. We know that God is God. We know that he's sovereign. We know that he does all things well, that he's perfect in all his ways. And if, if there's a seeming delay from the human side, from our impatient side, something is being wrought in the heavenlies or in the earth that we cannot see, that is somehow congruent with all his purposes, and he cannot therefore answer our need in the, in the moment that would gratify us. I was once uh, on a plane flying overseas reading a Time, a Newsweek magazine, about economics. Some of you may have heard me make this remark, it's worth repeating. And the author says, a secular man, he says, we've come to such a pitch and such a place in time that anything that happens anywhere affects everything everywhere. I said, wow, would to God a saint had said that. A secular man is seeing that in the secular world. How much more should we? That anything that happens anywhere affects everything everywhere. And there's the Lord over the whole of his massive enterprise coordinating and moving things for the consummation mm. of the end. Mm. So he cannot gratify us in the moment that we think the answer should come because mm. what comes to us has got to be coordinate yeah. with what he's doing elsewhere. And we yeah, can't see that doing, so we have to trust for it. Waiting is the name of the game. It's the mark of the saint. It's a priestly disposition. And impatience, being chafed, anxiety, fear, are statements of unbelief, lack of trust, that God is God. So, they will soon fade away like the grass. How soon? It will not be tomorrow. It may not be till eternity. So, we need to come into God seeing what is soon for Him. Uh, for a little while, you know, I have turned my face from you. A little while? My God, it seems like forever. Well, you need to adjust your seeing with mine, because the day in the sight of the Lord is as a thousand years. <laughs> Trust in the Lord and do good. This is James. If you have not works, where is your faith? Trust is not some kind of abstract disposition. It must eventuate in works. There must be consequence. There must be a doing that issues from a faith that is not an alternative to faith. The kind of works that God despises are those things that are engineered or summoned out of our humanity mm. as an alternative mm. to trust. Mm. That is despicable. But the works that issue from faith, yes. that is sublime. Hallelujah. And in fact, when he comes, he shall bring with him his rewards and give to each man according to his works. God forbid that in that day we should merit no reward. Because we thought that works were contrary to faith, and we were just waiting, we didn't do anything. <laughs> I can't believe that's uh, such a life. That they're so, the needs are so great of the last days. They cry at you. It's not for us to pick and choose which of, to which of them we, we will respond. But certainly God has not called us to passivity, Amen. but to participation. Amen. And in fact, that very participation is the preparation for our eternal ruling and reigning with Him. 
So it's a remarkably active life, but it's not self-generated, mm. nor is it a, a bomb or a sop for our souls as an alternative to trust or an alternative to faith. Mm. It's the works that issues from faith. Look at the order. Trust in the Lord and do good. I'll bet when David wrote that, he wasn't saying, now, how shall I say this so that, uh, that the saints of every generation will know that faith precede works? He didn't think like that. I don't know that he was even thinking. He just mm. was just spontaneously bearing his heart. Mm. But the great principle of God was wrought in his heart. And he could not have expressed it in any other way than he did. Trust in the Lord and do good. I mean, after man says something like that, he should retire. <laughs> You're not going to beat that, you know. So you will live in the land and enjoy security. Who has another expression for that? That that sounds like my reformed edition here. So shalt, uh, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Oh, isn't that beautiful? Of course, dwell on the land. Does that literally mean Israel or Palestine? I'm asking. Mm. I would say yes, mm. but not. Uh, that's not the full statement. Yeah. And it's a, cr a critical question whether present Israel can continue to be occupied by those who are unrighteous. Yeah. That righteousness is the qualification for residency. Yeah. Not some invoking God said that this That's was right. our land. Yeah. No. Yes, if you live in it yeah. under covenant yeah. conditions with a hot attitude and a conduct that's God-honoring. Yeah. If not, you'll be expelled from the land. Yeah. And so that land, yes, but there's a land also in a kind of spiritual sense. Mm. You'll dwell, you know, in the place of God. Mm. Notice that first is a, a statement that calls us to a certain condition, and then the second statement is the result of our having obtained it. It's full of instruction. We're going to see here the kinds of things that are so different from the modern mentality. Maybe I'll just leap to it right now about your children. Uh, look at verse 26. Well, <coughs> 25 and 26. Here's David speaking. I have been young and now I'm old. So this is evidently David in the latter stages of his life having a long experience in being groomed in the way of God. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are ever, who? who's the they? The righteous are ever giving liberally and lending. They are magnanimous. Their, their generosity, is, it's in what in them? It's not some self-conscious obligation. They spill out and they spill over. And their children become a blessing. That's the point I wanted to make. It's as if it's a reward for being generous. What, how, how do you couple these things together? What has this got to do with children? Is it because they see your example that they're going to grow up in the right way? Perhaps, but that's not implied or stated. It's as if there's a divine principle here that if you want your children to become a blessing, it's not going to be by taking them by the ear or grounding them in the faith. And, you know, I mean, I'm not disparaging that. But the remarkable thing is they're going to be a reflection of your generosity. That your generosity of soul, your ability to give, the largesse, this magnanimity that overflows, the consequence, divinely speaking, is God will bless your children. Show me that. Where? Where? How is that cause and effect? 
where, where can we see that this relates to that? We can't. God simply says so. <laughs> How about that? What a remarkable thing. And it completely blows our minds. And I'll tell you what, is there a generation that needs more to know what will it take for our children to be blessed? To become a blessing rather than a threat? We're raising up a generation of monsters capable of murder and mayhem without batting an eyelash. How can we avert and save them from the sweep and the tenor and the terrible atmosphere of this generation that is calculated to make them murderous? Well, by being generous. That's how according to the psalm. Of course, if this is just David daydreaming, we can ignore it. But if it's David expressing a divine principle, we had better heed it. So, what am I saying by all this? The psalms introduce us into a perception of reality, of cause and effect, that is altogether different and other than, the, than what the world knows. I would say that if you would follow this, the world would see you not only as strange, but disturbed and maybe even dangerous. You're no longer sane. You're not playing by the rules. You're hearing another drama. And you're marching by another beat. Well, it's a moot question of who's really sane or insane. But we may not be far from the time that if they see parents acting like this and trusting like this, their children might be taken from them as being irresponsible parents who are not doing it according to the world's program. So that even raising children in the last, last days is a, a remarkable taxation on faith. For example, the Psalms and the Proverbs, spare not the rod, the rod, they'll not die. Well, if you do that in Sweden, if you inflict the rod, you'll find yourself in prison. That's called abuse. And these children have rights, even in this country now, I believe, to divorce themselves from their own parents legally. Choose not to be the children of these parents. So, we're coming to a final showdown over the issue of children on how they're to be raised and whether we're going to follow the injunctions of God or that of man. It's a, a remarkable... To raise children in the last days is a remarkable uh, demand on faith. So the children are really um, the product of our faithfulness toward God. More than anything else, that is the issue. The children are the statement of our relationship and attitude toward God. I'm trying to remember an episode that came when I was praying for somebody in a hospital and they complained that their kids are loudmouth, vulgar, obscene, um, full of cursings and oaths and things of that kind that really disturbed them. And the Lord had me say something like, you would do well to regard that as some symptom and statement of your own failure. Probably your own walk with God is a kind of obscene uh, disrespect. These children are visibly and audibly expressing in disrespectful terms what you, in fact, are doing spiritually before God, but don't recognize it because you're not employing language of that kind. But in substance, what they are exhibiting is what you are, in fact, performing before God. And the way that God brings it to your attention is by showing it to you and your children. Wow. That's another way of perceiving reality. We need to put on another set of glasses. We need to bring ourselves into an alignment with divine perspectives, which are altogether different and other than that by which the world understands. And it's the question, ultimately, of what is real.
what is reality. So, back to uh, verse 4. Take delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Mm -hmm. Here again, a statement or an injunction, a call, and then a promise of a certain result. Mm -hmm. that, that is altogether different from cause and effect in the world. We don't see the connection, but it's a divine connection. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Because you can be assured that if you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires will be very much in keeping with his own. Amen. It's not going to be for a car that's a block long and has 16 cylinders in order. That, that won't even interest you. What will, what, will, what will be the desire of your heart it will be the desire of his heart. Because you delight yourself in the Lord. But hey, how do you come to that place? To delight yourself in the Lord. He's invisible. What are you going to delight? Okay. And you know what we need to notice? We should be keen observers of life as it has lived in our generation. Delight itself is a very rare phenomenon in the world, let alone among the people, the children of God. Well, do you have a delight? What, what is delight? Just, just to dwell on that word, delight. I would say that sainthood has, is proportionate to our capacity for delight mm -hmm. and that our capacity for delight is proportionate to our willingness for suffering. That joy is relative to sorrow. Mm -hmm. And that if we are immune and don't want to experience painful emotions and just want to walk a kind of a middle course, we will rob ourselves yeah. of joy right. and delight right. because we have, are not willing for the other end of the spectrum. Sorrow, pain, suffering, disappointment. We've got to take the chances. You know, uh, the Christian life is vulnerable. And what is community but the willingness to be vulnerable to, to disappointment, to uh, all of the kinds of shocks and jars and things that take place when God's people are together long enough and intensively enough to reveal and to express those things that will be painful before they're joyous. You know, follow that? Mm -hmm. That I knew when I left that 17-room house in New Jersey with the two Volvos and nine bedrooms and five baths, that uh, this was not going to be a picnic. Yeah. I wasn't concerned about the alteration of the material condition of life because I can only sleep in one bedroom at a time <laughs> and use one bathroom at a time. <laughs> but I knew that I was opening the door for humiliation, that I would be found out, the, con the truth of my life, my marriage, my family. It would be out, it would be hanging out there. And yes, so you have to bear that but under, I, I would not be doing God's service and justice if I said it was only humiliation, only frustration, only discipline, only pain. There were corresponding joys, unspeakable yes. moments of God where you didn't leave the room, you floated out of the room. Yes. Uh, dealings and revelation yes. and breakthroughs yes. and insights and joy in the Lord. Worth every moment. That's proportionate. So what, what's, what distinguishes the saints from the earthlings? The earthlings want to play it safe. They don't want to make themselves vulnerable for pain, but they shut out at the same time any prospect of joy. And therefore, they've got to hit the bottle. They've got to have a chemical substitute for the joy that yeah. would have been theirs in the Lord. Because we're made for joy. We're made for living life in the full. We're not made for stunted humanity, but to be large in God. Paul was a full-orbed man. Mm in mind and body and soul and spirit. He wasn't some narrow uh, performer, some uh, religionist 
serving some narrow God. He was, a, he was larger than life. And so ought all God's people to be, if they're willing for the whole spectrum of both suffering and joy. Maybe the, the art of delight is not the spectacular things, but the mundane and the everyday things that are always with us, that we would have passed by without observation or appreciation. To find delight in the ordinary and the saints, to find your delight in the saints of God is, uh, is our relationship with God, you know. Uh, I, I praise God for that. He doesn't allow us an exalted, phony, super spiritual, ethereal relationship with Him, independent of our relationship with His people. The two things are so coordinate. So I would say that I would be suspicious of, a, of ethereal delight at a spiritual level where there's not a corresponding delight at the earthly level with God's people as they in fact are in their present condition in the process of sanctification and not yet arrived and still to find delight in them. In fact, the, the day will come when we'll have no other source of delight. The, the, plug, the plug will be pulled on the amenities of civilization and we're not going to be running to the movies, or not that we do now, or any other external uh, enjoyment. We'll be locked in with the saints. And I remember from the first months of our experience here, 25 years ago, everybody wanted to go into town. And we were poor. We couldn't afford these trips. It's a 60-mile round trip. That's at least two or more gallons of gas. And we didn't have that many vehicles, and most of them were broken down. We had a, a plot for one or two free trips a week that had to do with purchase and things like that. But people wanted to go into town. I said, what for? My kids wanted to go into town. They wanted to go to the mall. I said, well, what do you need? Nothing, really. What, what do you want to buy? Nothing. Why do you want to go? We want to see the merchandise. We need to see our eyes are voluptuous. We need, we need, we're bored at looking at the same faces all the time. We want to get out. You know? we're, we're confined and we see the same people every day. Well, you may see them, but do you see them? You know? Uh, are they so one-dimensional that after you've seen them for a few days, you've exhausted the subject? <laughs> you know? Or is there a richness in God's people? Don't they have a history in God? Aren't they variable? Can you find two of the same? There's no two fingerprints the same as snowflakes. What then about those that are made in God's image that he has formed from their mother's womb? That's right. They're so variable. I, I can't help but think of Inga wanting to call the ambulance when we were in Israel. Uh, what's that that uh, support on the Red Sea, uh, Eilat, and they have a maritime museum, and you can go down a spiral staircase, and you're looking in through great glass windows of the sea. You're at the bottom of the sea at Eilat, and you can see the flora and the fauna. Well, I saw fish and forms of life of such a kind. Some fish were chartreuse, some were shocking pink, some were dots, some had zigzags. I never saw such a variety of design that had nothing to do with their environment. It did not protect them where they would be kind of camouflaged. It made them all the more conspicuous, which is to say that God who created them was just having a bash, just a ball. He was just going wild. He was pulling out the stops. He was just showing the variety of his power to create and his originality. And I'm gasping and choking and spluttering. And they had to cart me away in a straitjacket. 
We've never heard that yeah, one. Yeah, we never heard that Ask Inga. She, she always talks about it. I, I actually went berserk when I saw God pull out the stuffs. Because I'd grown up in this evolutionary thing that uh, every, they take on their forms, they, they're chameleons, they change their colors to protect. Yeah, there's that. But there's God who just wanted to show that I can create without any uh, thing to do with the environment that it inhabits, just to show off my creative power. Look at this. Can you find two fish the same? Shades of color and shocking colors, astonishing, like like they're illuminated, plugged in, and dots and zigzags and design. And <laughs> it was staggering. How, how can we ever say that we're bored with the saints, or that we have to get out? Uh, we, we see the same people. Our problem is we don't see. And uh, so, I think somewhere is it in the Psalms or the Proverbs where we're encouraged to draw out the heart of another that probably we're bored because we lack the facility to draw out the richness that's in God's saints and we're suffering from a, a malnutrition in the church though the irony is that we could feast in what is already there in the saints but have, we lack the facility to draw out the nourishment that's there so uh, what, what a contradiction that God has already given us such wealth and we're impoverished and suffering from malnutrition. And if we need a pastor, we have to import him from somewhere. I never liked that. Mm. That they, to find a replacement, they have to put out a search and get some guy from, mm. and rather than out of the yeah. organic body itself. Yeah. Which is God's way. So, may we delight ourselves in the Lord, which is to say, delight ourselves in God's people, delight ourselves in God's nature, delight ourselves in God's word, in his purpose, in the Psalms. In the psalmist, in David. What, I mean, listen, we've got a family here. David, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets of old, and the apostles, and all of the giants of the faith, and a great literature that has issued from them beyond the scripture itself. What an inheritance, what, what a past, what a future, what a destiny. And we're bored. And listen, and you've got to get out to a shopping mall <laughs> to see the merchandise. To see the merchandise. <laughs> and by the way, they know how to package the merchandise. <laughs> Supermarkets today. <laughs> why? Why do they stack it in such abundance? Because there's a psychological principle that when you see something in such multiplication and. and um, visible abundance it moves upon you to have a piece of that and they know how to, you know how these uh, manufacturers and uh, uh, those who produce Wheaties and corn pops vie for shelf space that there's a great struggle and an internal yeah. tension right. and dynamic about right. who's going to have this shelf right. space because that's at the eye level that's right. and don't you know that they employ people who are have university degrees yeah, in right. design, right. in color, in sound, and every kind of thing for an allurement. Yeah. There never was a generation like this. Strikes where every zigzags. demonic... Yeah. Huh? Strikes and zigzags. No. <laughs> but the, 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 the demonic equivalent yeah. of what will engage the eye, engage the senses that's voluptuous, colorful, and will in, in, in bring you into it in order to buy. Mm. And in contrast to that, we have the simplicity of the church in its ordinary condition in God's makeshift, slapdash, uh, motley band of saints. That there are not many, what does it say, not many... Not many noble. Noble, not many 
Yeah, yeah. We, we, we're out of the bottom of the barrel. We're, we're off the donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so, they that delight themselves in the Lord. What a, what a phrase, what a statement. Wow. What's the promise? They'll receive the desires of their hearts. And I'm sure that those desires are uniquely different from those who do not delight themselves in the Lord. Probably a reversal of the kind of desire that men would have in the world. So commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. It's a promise. That his action may be slow in coming and when it comes it may be different from what you expected. He will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light though you may have to for a long season wallow in and live in unjust accusations and misrepresentation and all the other kinds of things. He's not, God's not in the business of alleviating our distress instantly. In fact, distress has salutary benefit. To live with distress, with uh, um, a demeaned reputation or where your vindication does not come and you have to live it out with your face sticking out, for example, called a cult or a sect because we're living in the woods here. People believe that. We've been here 25 years. And if you were picking someone off the street of Cass Lake or Laporte and ask them what they think, they would say, oh, this is a cult, a sect. Well, that's not a happy accusation. And it's the opposite of the truth. Yeah. This is as, yep. I mean, I don't know, how do I say this? As much the reality of the church as can be found in this locality, and yet to the eyes of people in certain conditions, it's a cultural sect. And God's not vindicating you. Even a woman who did an article on us <coughs> from the uh, Park Rapids newspaper, and meant well, yet when the way the article came out, we did not come up smelling like a rose. Uh, she said, those who follow art... As if, oh yeah, uh, Jones, what's, oh, great one. What, what's this guy Jones? You know, they gave you the, the appearance of some cultic thing, a bunch of mindless, brainwashed, glassy-eyed people following this charismatic figure, who knows where. That's the way she saw it, that's the way she expressed it. And I didn't call her back to say, we want equal space. We, we want vindication, we want to be set forth as we are, not as you have this sort of representative. You just have to live with that. There's suffering, there's something beneficial in the suffering of something that is not quickly vindicated. It's something like the prophet having to hold his burden. God giving it to him years in advance of any possibility of fulfillment. But why give it to him before the time? Because he has to hold it. And in the holding of it, and keeping quiet about it, just the holding, something is going on in the interior man as a kind of discipline that affects the man that when the time for the release of the burden comes it will come forth in a much more pure and profound way than if he had blurted it out immediately there's some benefit in holding and there's some probably some benefit in being unjustly accused and not being quickly vindicated and living with injustice or misrepresentation and daring it King David when he cut off the corner of uh, Paul, Saul's robe he said let God vindicates me. Let him uh, judge, be, between. judge between us. I'm not going to make a case for myself. Uh, so there was David in, a, in an explicit moment when his own life was at stake, 
acting on this principle. But just interesting that this morning, I think before I finished my first cup of coffee, I already had two apologies. Look at the result when God does it. He will make your vindication shine like a light. When he vindicates, it's not just that you will be allevi alleviated of your personal distress, but that he will be glorified in that alleviation. Because you're probably suffering it on his account. And the justice of your cause like the noonday. Let God do it, because then it really comes forth redemptively and gloriously. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So this waiting, be still. Uh, be still and know that I am God. You know that uh, yeah. also out of the Psalms? Yeah. 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 How much of our failure to know God is our failure to be still? Because the promise of being still is the obtaining of the knowledge of God. And a dimension that would not be ours if we were not obedient to the command to be still. That the key to the knowledge is not our active intellectual pursuit, but obedience to the word. Be still and know. The knowing is the consequence of being still. But being still is no small requirement, particularly for us who have been in the world, or energetic men, or dynamic, or to be still. Not just externally, but inwardly. You know, there's a, there's a way in which you can maybe sit on your hands, but your heart is palpitating, your mind is racing, your thoughts are way out in left field. That's not being still. Being still is the whole of body, soul, mind, and spirit coming to a place of rest because it's a place of confidence in God that can wait. And in that is the knowledge of God. Be still and know. There's much at stake, and yet it is contrary to the whole ethos, E-T-H-O-S, the whole mind of our present civilization that is frenetic, active, anxious, always on the go, always finding some more bizarre, more um, loud, picturesque kind of a film or thing or program, to be still in our generation would really be a spiritual attainment. This is a generation that can't do its homework without the radio on, without their earphones on, without a boombox. How many times are you riding in the street and some guy's got his radio in the car? He has some special equipment. You know, you don't just hear the noise issuing out of his car. You feel the vibration. That sound has become a sensual experience in our generation. So that quiet is the very antithesis of all of this demonic emphasis on noise. Now, to find to be quiet in the midst of that, like the day that in Cairo, Egypt, I went up to see the Sisters of Mary, Vasilia Schlink's Fellowship, the Marian Schwestern, do you know what this is? The Sisters of Mary, they're not Catholic. It's a Protestant women's fellowship in Germany. Vasilia Schlink is one of God's 20th century oracles. And when you go to Darmstadt, the headquarters, as I did the first time, you were on holy ground, felt palpable holy ground. And the legend that I've heard is that when David Wilkerson visited there for the first time by the end of his visit he threw himself on the compost heap wow he was so stricken about the holiness of God that was sensed and felt in that place that he threw himself on the, on the compost heap what, is it, what, what kind of an atmosphere must it be that's so felt palpable and so holy and if you read the history of that place these women built those buildings themselves out of the rubble and bricks of the destroyed Darmstadt of World War II. And uh, one episode talks about the trolley falling off the tracks that were bringing the bricks to the building site. 
and they, they stopped and they prayed and the Lord showed them that there was an unspoken resentment between two sisters and these two sisters were convicted and worked it out and prayed and forgave them the thing never fell off the tracks again everything they did was couched in the deepest spiritual terms everything practical and physical was really ultimately spiritual so that when it was finished and they lived in that spirit it was holy, holy, holy well it's one thing to do that in Germany because pietistic movements are part of the history of Protestantism in Germany. We don't have this in America. Uh, an order of women who are celibate and wear wedding bands because they're married to the Lord? It's unknown. In Germany, it's not unknown. So I thought, well, this is, they have an advantage in their history and their culture. But then the Lord called them to disband and to go out from, from Germany and into different parts of the world. So I went to visit them in Cairo. You know what Cairo is like? You can't cross the street without getting hit by a camel or a car. If there are three or four lanes, there are seven or eight cars vying for it. They don't drive by sight, they drive by sensors. By hearing the sounds of the horns that are continually being sounded, you know wow. if you're in a... It's an unbelievable congestion, unbelievable stink unbelievable pollution it's the noisiest filthiest city in the world 14 million people ragged compressed into that place I said, oh let me see the sisters of Mary here you know one thing to perform this in Germany so I remember going up the flight of steps they had like an apartment for themselves and I knocked on the door expecting to see them haggard and disordered and, and, and responding to the congestion and the intensity and noise of that environment and the door opened and out came the same heavenliness that I had been affected by in Germany. It wasn't Germany. The issue was not where they were. The issue was what they were in God. They brought heaven with them, even to Cairo. So be still is one thing in an environment like this, but how about when it will be charged with tension and life and death questions and noise and contention and clamor can we be still then and be quiet then? It's an art, but we need to cultivate it and nurture it. And we're encouraged to it in the Psalms. We're enjoined, be still, before the Lord. Now don't miss that part. Be still before the Lord. Because if you're still before the Lord, what is there externally in the world or in man that can rob you of that quiet? Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. What is it? About the third or fourth time now that that injunction has come. Fret not, fear not. Fear not, fret not. It leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Here's a whole, what shall I say, framework of understanding of reality. This is as fundamental as you can get in what touches the ground where the rubber hits the road. Those who are pursuing evil and seeming to prosper at it who are wicked and the righteous who are seeming to be denied. They have to wait for their gratification, for their realization. And this is somehow the formative way in which the psalmist perceives the whole of reality itself. The wicked shall be cut off. Does it say when? The issue is God. It's not that men are just prospering who are wicked. 
It's where is the God who allows them? The issue is God. It's not that men are just prospering who are wicked. It's where is the God who allows them to prosper? And uh, is this the God in whom we can believe? Or maybe God himself is a fiction and a myth and we have been sucked into some uh, understanding that, that reality does not support. Where is this God? Very slow to, to deliver the goods and to allow us to languish in the condition of this tension as if he is not God. The only way that you can do that without fretting is to have a sublime confidence that God is God even when he's not delivering the goods and that he's not under obligation to deliver the goods even in your lifetime that these, all these died the great heroes of, this, of the faith in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 10 is it or 11 all these died not having received the promise but having received the good report none of them saw the realization of that for which they lived the life of faith and sacrifice right to the day of their death but not one of them ever was diminished in faithfulness and performing the things for which they were called. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to have the immediate reward in order to be faithful. They could believe for it after. This is faith. This, this, this is sainthood. And they are the pattern. That's why they're given us in, in uh, Hebrews 11. As the, it's not that some of them died without having received reward. All these died not having received the reward all without exception, as if to say, the reward is not to be expected in this life, but faithfulness is, obedience is, service and servanthood is, without the reward. The reward will come after. The reward will come later. How do you know? Because God says so. Because he's faithful. Because he will vindicate his saints. And the after is much longer and much more glorious than the present. This is a transient and passing thing. It's eternity that's the real subject for which this lifetime is only preparation. Cats, you're really mad now. You sound like someone out of the Middle Ages who had this narrow view that this life was a veil of tears and trial all for the eternity to come. Pie in the sky when you die. Come on, guy. Wake up. Get with it. It's this life. It's now or nothing. That's why we get divorced and remarry. Not once, but twice or three times. Because we have a right. Because we want to be gratified. And after all, we're, we're young yet. And still good looking. And it was an unhappy experience. But why be saddled with that? Try, try again. It's this life. We've got to get our satisfaction in this life. And that has unhappily come into and corrupted, or is corrupting the church. Not uh, over the issue of marriage, but many issues. Because we want our satisfaction and our reward now. A saint is one who can postpone his gratification till after. And in no way diminishes his obedience or his service. He does not need the reward of gratification now in order to be obedient. He's utterly confident that the Lord will yes. at some future time bring it beyond any ability he has even yes. to conceive of it. Amen. Totally different from the world. The world wants workers and the world wants performance. Its reward is right now and it will even tell you what you will get if you will perform. But the children of the kingdom march by another beat. All these died not having received their reward but were convinced of it. Amen. So, 
The wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And all that that phrase implies. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. What do you mean a little while? (laughs) (laughs) Imagine living in the Hitler time, when when one day was like an eternity, and and Jews were being slaughtered like it was going out of style, and nations were being overturned, and civilization being brought down around our ears, and God says, in a little while, well, his little while and our little while are two different things. Mm. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. It seems like a forever, and the wicked are destructive. See, see the dualism of the psalmist? It's the wicked and the righteous. There's no other category. There's cursing or blessing. There's um, righteousness or, or evil. It's a dualistic view of reality that modern people would condemn as being simplistic. But the question is, is it that, or is this the truth? Are we, uh, is the modern world the thing that's perceived, that sees all these multiple kinds of things when the real issue is the one or the other? Choose ye this day, blessing or curse. Well, what's a believer? One who has committed himself to this view of reality and lives by it. And that's what will make us in this world strangers and sojourners. We will be strange. <laughs> strangers sojourners is one of the words. Pilgrims in this world. This world is inhospitable to God. It's at enmity with Him. Because its tune, its logic, its reason, its concept of reward and gratification, totally different and other than that of God. What is a believer? A saint? One who has committed himself to the biblical view and has steeped himself in these scriptures as if being the very predicate and foundation of his reality. He will not be moved by any other consideration. That's madness or sanity, one or the other. So, yet a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for the place, uh, they will not be there. That's powerful. But the meek shall inherit the land. Not appropriate it, or lay their hands on it, or what's the word, rudely take it to themselves, they'll inherit it. Isn't that a beautiful word? I love that. Inherit. It's something that you have. You, you do not obtain by your virtue or your effort. It's something given by virtue of your relationship with someone who has died and left it for you. To inherit the land is to affect the very character in which you will live in it. it how we acquire something very much determines how we're going to employ it. To inherit the land is very different from rudely appropriating it. And that's what we're learning now in the history of the present state of Israel. But before the smoke clears, we're going to see the different, the alternative. A surviving remnant of present-day world Jewry will return to to the land, to Zion, as the redeemed of the Lord, and it will be given them as an inheritance and not an expropriation. And it will not have the same savage consequence on those who were already in the land as the Zionist enterprise has had, which will be the, the setting in motion those things by which present Israel will finally be brought down. Yeah. The, the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the desire for vengeance on the part of Islamic Arab people is another spirit. You cannot understand it. There's no placating that spirit. Mm-hmm. You can't give them territorial concessions or make other... Um, um, Oslo agreement conditions that will gratify them. There's one thing only, death and destruction for these Jews and casting them into the sea. 
We don't just want the Gaza Strip, the whole land. Mm. What we're seeing in history, what history has always shown, but maybe it's all the more glaring when it's performed by a people whose book this is, who have not lived by it, and had expropriated or appropriated or found one way or another to come in and to possess, but set in motion the resentments, anger, the displacements. I don't know how many, how many Palestinian Christians that we know who lived where the present uh, Tel Aviv airport is and had lived there for centuries and are now in Ramallah. And they were forced, marched out of Israel, many dying in the way, just like the American Indians, when they were forced out of their places into distant reservations, died in route. This is part of the recent experience of Palestinians. So there's a profound difference between a human appropriation and that which is an inheritance. And God is going to reveal, reveal both in our generation. Hallelujah. The meek shall inherit the land. Anybody have a definition for meekness? One that waits on the Lord. Yeah. It's a beautiful word. You know, we, it's a quiet you don't run to a dictionary for words so like this. Words like this are like a rare wine. You've got to take it on your tongue and let it rest there before you gulp it down. Meek. Because this is the very character of God himself. This is the essential nature of God himself. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Your king shall come to you lowly, riding on the back of an ass. Zechariah chapter 9. And Jesus said, find an ass, a donkey, it's tied up. And if any man asks of you, say, the Lord uh, has need of it. You'll find a colt and an ass. You'll find a mother and its young offspring. Bring them both to me. And which of the two does he ride on? Not the experienced older animal that has borne the weight of the man before, but of one upon which never man sat. He took the weakest and the youngest animal and plopped himself on it and came down the Mount of Olives. You ever been down the Mount of Olives? You can't walk down and maintain your dignity. Impossible. It's too steep. I mean, it's just absurd the way you've got to walk without... It's just like a precipice. But they come down on the, on the back of an ass upon which never man sat. And that's the king coming into his uh, eternal city. It's an absurdity. It, it's a picture of utter weakness and foolishness. But your king shall come to you lowly and meek riding on the back of an ass. Mm. The meek shall inherit the earth. Tell me what meek is. Double dare you. Humble. Surrender. Huh? Humble. Humble. Surrendered strength. But then what is humble? What? Surrendered strength. Surrendered strength. Yeah, you know but, but I know that. Yeah, no. You're, you're yeah. disqualified. disqualified. Yeah. You've been here before. You're disqualified. Boldly free from the influence of the world. Good, yeah. Does meek mean that you're like a Casper milk toast and you never raise your voice? And, oh, are you asking me to be a speaker? Really? I, I don't, I'm not a public speaker. I'm not, no. Is that meekness? Mm-hmm. What a brother called that salesman's humility. It's a design <laughs> calculated to obtain something. Meekness is, is in no way something affected in order to obtain some kind of benefit or to obtain some kind of esteem or recognition. Or, or rec- Meekness is what God himself is through and through. I mean, so when I picked up an essay one day, The Humility of God, I, I gasped and fell out of my seat. I knew that we were called to humility 
I didn't know that God was. The humility of God, the creator of all things, is, is, is humble and meek. That, that was stupefying, but that's what he is. And that's why he loves that quality in his saints. The meek shall inherit the earth. So uh, have we come to a real definition? It's so rich a word that no single definition will do it. We have to apprehend this word, not define it, and be apprehended by it. Because this is the essential character and disposition that God wants established a in willingness, A willingness to be quiet and still before him, knowing that he himself is your vindication. Okay. What would you say when Jesus overthrew the money changers' tables? Mm-hmm. With a whip. Yeah. He scourged them with a whip that he himself made. Call that meekness? Mm-hmm. He lost it. Huh? He lost it. He lost it. He blew it right now. Lost his temper. But by him being God, that was meekness. What I'm really saying is, can you be meek even in the midst of a violent act of obedience? Sure. In fact, would you have performed that act right. except that you were meek? Yeah, that's right. Meek means total resignation to the will of God, <laughs> however displeasing to ourselves. A complete submission and surrender to God's will, however contrary to our own interest and whatever the consequence that follows, we do it. It was those money changes were always at the temple. Mm-hmm. He could have at any time done something like that in his whole three and a half year tenure but there was a moment that the father gave because nothing happens anywhere that does not affect everything everywhere and what happens has got to happen in the ordained time the set time to favor Zion has come there's two Greek words for time kairos k-a-i-r-o-s and chronos c-h-r-n-o-s chronology is the word that we use for that second word which is time as it's measured but what is kairos? K-A-I-R-O-S. The set time to favor Zion. It's another kind of time. It's not one that has come chronologically, but one that has come at a point in the fulfillment of a designated purpose in God. And the church needs to have that sensitivity, that sense of what God is wanting and wait for it, and not do something prematurely and before the time. Maybe that's meekness. Jesus could have done what he did at any time, but he only performed it at one time, and it set in motion his death. And it was a, it was a violent act that by every reckoning you would say, well, he lost it. He lost it. How about when Jesus waited after he heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, and yet waited two days longer where he was, because the set time had not yet come. He wasn't going to act out of human compassion that this man that I love is sick. Hey, I've got to go right now and and help him. He waited. That's meekness. Meekness, I'm just talking off the top of my head, is allowing the will of God to prevail as against every impulse in our humanity to act otherwise. Meekness is a total surrender to the will of God. Whatever that moment in, in God's will requires, and therefore, there are moments when you'll act in a way that is decidedly unmeek. It's not going to be a salesman's humility. You may be loud and uh, uh, um, insistent and, I don't know what, absolute in what you say and do. But that's not contrary to meekness if that's what the moment requires. This is a 
precious state of being. It's, it's the very essence of God's own nature. Learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart. It's not something I'm putting on or affecting. It's what I am through and through. And probably the most profound illustration was the washing of the feet, as we mentioned the other day by Jesus, where he could take off his robe. Not many of us can do that. Because to take off our robe is to take off our identification. But what we're wearing, how we deport ourselves, is the way we want to be understood and recognized. And to remove that is to lay ourselves bare. That we lose our identity. Who are we? <laughs> Jesus had no fear of the loss of identity. He knew that he was from the Father. He knew he was going to the Father. And the Father had given him all things. Therefore, he got up and took off his robe and girded himself about with a towel and took a basin of water and washed the feet of his disciples. That humility, that act of humility, was based on the deepest knowledge of God. And this is what we need, or else our humility will be a salesman's humility. It will be an affectation. It will be a play acting of keeping our voices soft. And, oh, are you asking me to speak? Really, I'm not a speaker. That kind of stuff. A person who is in the meekness of God will be a public speaker when the moment requires it, though he's had no previous experience. He will not make an excuse for himself that sounds flattering because to defer from the moment of God's obedience because you feel that you're not qualified is not meekness but arrogance. It's the very opposite of meekness. And the world is so deceived that it's impressed with that kind of performance. To say, no, I cannot, when God says, yes, you will, is arrogance, not meekness. Meekness is to say, well, Lord, I've had no previous experience, but if you're calling me, I'll trust you for the enablement and grace. I'll do it. That's the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. How come? You see this throughout all the Psalms. The wicked are bent on the destruction of the righteous. They cannot abide their existence. And the history of the church documents this. The Anabaptists, the Waldensians, every apostolic movement, even before the Protestant Reformation, was always attacked. Their death was, and destruction was always sought by the established religious bodies. Why couldn't they let them be? You know what the, the Mennonites and the, the Anabaptists were called? The Stille in Landa, the quiet ones, talk about, in the land. They were the quiet ones. They made no show. They were little communities of believers. They churned their own butter. They built their own houses. They kept their own fields. They were industrious. They prospered. They were blessed. They were godly people. Why couldn't the Lutherans and the, the state churches in, uh, allow them to exist? Why did the wicked always plot against the righteous and are not content except for their life. The righteous, who are always an indictment of the wicked, even when they're silent, their very presence, their life, their character, reveals the fraudulent thing, especially of those who purport to be religious. Those are the ones who cannot afford their existence. The secular are more able to tolerate them, but those who purport that they are religious and are in relationship with God but do not evidence the same quietness and sweetness and meekness and are brawling. Luther and those of his generation believed that these Anabaptists were of the devil because how come they don't curse, they don't drink, they don't run after women, they don't do any of the things that the Lutherans are doing. It must be from the devil because every other Christian who's born a Christian and sprinkled uh, is carrying on as if 
that's the way you are. You're sinners being saved by grace. You don't expect to walk in righteousness. But these people who are doing it must be doing it by the power of Satan. And therefore, they need to be destroyed. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? That the women that were probably drowned for being witches yeah. might have been God's choicest saints. So this has always been a historic persecution. And how about in the last days? Dun, 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 dun. Is this issue going to fade away? As we come into modernity and modern times? Or will it become at the end as acute and as bitter, as savage as it ever was in the history of the church? Maybe more so. This is a way of viewing reality. This is the way the psalmist sees it and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees their day is coming. The wicked draw their sword and bend their bows to bring about the, to bring down the poor and needy and kill those who walk uprightly. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. This is another theme. That those that are wicked shall die by, their, by the very designs that they seek to employ against the righteous will bring them down. There's a paradox, there's an ironic thing that the, their very device is their undoing. So better is a little that the righteous person has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will abide forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. This is my psalm for the day, and until I came to that verse, I had not marked any other place. I'm just going to read it, and that was it. When I hit that, wow. I did a double take. Because here's a promise for the last days. Mm. They are not to be put to shame in evil times. Mm. In the days of famine, they have abundance. Mm. The Lord knows the days, mm. and He knows those who are His. And that we have to believe this promise as against mm. every appearance to the contrary. I've even made the suggestion that the greatest provision for the saints at a time when we cannot bind or sell is not what we store up, but what we give away. And especially to those who come into our midst, who are naked, thirsty, hungry, and in their terrible need. And we have to share our little widow's mic with them, our last jar of oil, and our last uh, can of grain. What happened when the woman did that for the prophet? There was no end of oil and no end of flour. And it may well be that in our generosity and willingness to part with the last thing that is necessary for the preservation of our own life and give it to those who are despised, that will be the very key to the supernatural provision of God, not only for them, but for us. Mm. I wouldn't put it past the Lord at all. That we will see those supernatural demonstrations and those that are being fed and provided by it will see it also. Is it what? You're giving a little measure of this to us? Yes, but in giving, we release a flow from God that we will amply provide in these last days. That our provision is our generosity. You see how contrary this is? It's another wisdom. This is another way. And God is looking for people who will elect to walk in it, though it is contrary to the wisdom of this world in every point and particular. That if you give yourself to this way and walking in it by a faith that believes God for it, it will mock you as a stranger and a pilgrim and a sojourner in the earth.
you will be strange. That's the most uncomfortable of all feelings. You will not be one of the boys. You'll be looked upon as some kind of freako. But David was beloved because he walked in this way. And that's why he had the insight to write in this way. And this is the way of the Lord. The Psalms are like a guide, a textbook, a, a manual for last days overcoming in a way that would have astounded us that it has not to do with assertion but with rest. It's not to do with wheeling and dealing but with quiet. It's got not to do with uh, performance but with uh, trust. And that will be tested because the answer will not come because we're doing the right thing we're going to get the right response. We, it may not come till after. So our last day's provision is our godly character. So just, just to boil it all down the key to last day's provision is not our storing up but our godly character God will honor and reward the blameless they'll not experience famine in time of want. that's his promise <coughs> maybe we've been barking up the wrong tree and, and uh, giving too much consideration to the other rather than to be, becoming the blameless does it mean that blameless means that you're spot free and uh, you've never ever fallen that you've never uh, sin that you're, you're kind of impeccable look my no hands sainthood that's not a saint David himself yeah. was the most grievous of sinners but he was a forgiven sinner he came to a place through the blood of the lamb yet future yeah. an atonement by which the blame was removed yeah. he Amen. suffered a certain consequence but in God's sight he was yeah. no longer blameworthy Amen. Blameless, not because of some impeccability that walks such a tight life that's afraid to take a misstep. But saints who have stumbled but are forgiven and are without blame in his sight. The blameless. I love the language of God if we rightly understand it. You know, this is a revelation of God's mind. To know God. How does it mean to know God? To know what he delights in. What he endorses. What he abhors. What's an abomination for him? What, what kind of character? What, what, what does he, he loves what, when he sees in his saints what he is in himself and knows that it's not a superficial affectation and a put-on, an overt show, but something that has been inwrought because we have steeped ourselves in the way of the Lord, because we believe this is God's word, because we have made this our own, and we, see, and we walk in it by the grace of God, and we encourage each other in that walk. Listen, we're called to insanity. And how are we going to perform this? Who, who of us has the courage and the strength to walk a walk like this by himself? We need the encouragement yeah. of the saints. Yeah. We need to say, oh, okay, you stumbled, but keep on keeping on and, and being blessed and I receive your correction and we're out for something together that God will honor even in the time of famine. Yeah. And what a testimony for those who are destitute around us. They realize that we have no material access to, to anything more than they and yet Somehow our life continues, it's being sustained and provided for. We have little when they had abundance, but that little is enough. And it, it's, it'll be a demonstration of another kingdom come. It's a kingdom to come, but it's already present and already evident in their, in their neighborhood. This is a way. Walk in the way. So Lord, oh precious God, 150 psalms, <laughs> that'll transform the, 
most terrible convict <laughs> and culprit who ever stalked the earth if he will surrender to it. Yes, Lord. Lord, your way is past.